Hello, I'm Hannah Critchlow, and in this month's Naked Neuroscience, we'll be opening our minds with support from Cambridge Neuroscience to uncover Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD. We'll be speaking with someone with autism to find out what their world looks like. Autism really is just a cluster of human behaviours taken to their extremes. The way that somebody on the autistic spectrum experiences the, the world is just an extreme of how somebody without autism might. We'll be asking, could environmental pollutants play a role? Why is autism sometimes thought of as simply extreme male behaviours? And since genetics are involved, could you diagnose newly born babies and start treating? Well, to kickstart getting us to grips with this often misunderstood condition, here's the Naked Scientist's quickfire science on autism spectrum disorder. I'm joined by Kate Lamble. Autism was first described as a unique syndrome in 1943 by the American psychiatrist and physician Leo Kanner. Today, Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD, is recognised to affect around one in every hundred people worldwide. Every case is different, but everyone on the spectrum shares three main areas of difficulty, social interaction, communication and imagination or flexible thinking. On the flip side, people with ASD may exhibit common strengths with focused attention to detail, an excellent memory and a tendency to logical thinking. Other common traits of ASD include a love of routines, sensory sensitivity in one of the five senses and having intense special interests, topics that they enjoy talking about and engaging in over and over again. However, it's hard to characterise a condition which ranges from the 1 in 10 people who cannot speak to those who are high-functioning and have a milder form of autism spectrum disorder. ASD symptoms typically start to develop in early childhood, but some people with milder forms are not diagnosed with the condition until adulthood. In the past, some people believed that the vaccine for measles, mumps and rubella caused ASD. However, further investigation showed that there is no link between the two. Instead, the age at which communication problems begin to appear in ASD patients is around the same age that the vaccine is given. While we don't yet know the cause of autism, it's been suggested that high levels of testosterone in the womb may affect brain development and lead to the condition. This might be why males are more likely to have autism than females, at a ratio of about 4 to 1. Genetics also seems to play a role in 90% of autism cases, with an increased risk of a baby developing the disorder if relatives have it. But it's likely that many genes are involved, possibly interacting with environmental factors. There is no cure for ASD, but education and behavioural support can help. If you're concerned that your child may exhibit characteristics of the disorder, visit your GP who can refer you for an assessment. And that was Kate Lamble joining me for the Quickfire Science on the Naked Scientist show World Autism Awareness Day on the 2nd of April. Later on, we'll be speaking with an educational psychologist for tips on how to help children with ASD, both at home and in school. Plus, we'll be talking with Professor Simon Baron-Cohen on the role of testosterone in shaping autistic babies' brains and behaviours. But first, to find out how this very heterogeneous condition affects one person, I spoke with 27-year-old Robin Stewart. Um, my autism affects me in a wide range of, of ways. I have had uh, not so much as I've got older, but uh, when I was younger, I had a lot of difficulties 
reading body language and reading people's intentions and you know understanding other people's perspectives of particular situations that skill is called theory of mind and i've had to work very hard to develop a kind of cognitive theory of mind so i'm able to think through situations by myself rather than it being intuitive i actually have to work quite hard at that i have some sensory perception differences to other people so my hearing is hypersensitive particularly when i'm stressed so for example when i'm really anxious i get pains pulsing pains in my ears i had a lot of problems with knowing which emotions i was experiencing and then how to deal with them before they they built up um so most people are able to regulate their emotions over a day and do things to level up the balance between anxiety and frustration for example whereas that's something that somebody on the autistic spectrum might find quite difficult and actually have to be very conscious to to deal with that also when i was at school i got bullied a lot um because i was different and a lot of people on the autistic spectrum I suppose they don't think about work politics and so they'll quite often say exactly what they mean and there are sometimes when they may well behave in a way that other people might not understand so like stimming for example which is short for self stimulating um diagnostically you call that repetitive routine behavior so things like flapping and rocking and that kind of thing um people on the autistic spectrum will sometimes do that for a wide range of reasons but could be anxiety could be stress could be dealing with overstimulation so then i i have to have a period of time during my day where i stim generally just before bed for 15 or 20 minutes just to keep me calm and and a bit more regulated is there any other kind of rules or any other ways that you manage your autism Um well yes lots really um so I have Stanley who is a stress star he's not a ball because he's in a star shape and I use him well particularly when I'm going up and down on airplanes the thing about autism is that it affects people you know that autism really is just a cluster of human behaviors taken to their extremes so the way that somebody on the autistic spectrum experiences the the world is just an extreme of how somebody without autism might experience the world or who is not on the autistic spectrum so the things that i find difficult and the tools that i use are probably very similar to a non-autistic person but i'm perhaps more likely to use them on a more regular basis but also in a more conscious way perhaps so coming up and down in an airplane i mean that might sound like a very regular thing uh for me i'm not really worried about plane crashes because i mean they're so rare i mean they do happen but they're quite rare but uh it's more the pain because i'm hypersensitive um my brain will process the the change in air pressure and i could get overwhelmed by the pain and obviously when you get off the plane then you have to dealing with all the lighting and the sounds and navigating around somewhere that you may well have not been before using stanley would be a kind of preventative measure to make sure i don't get too overwhelmed um i use headphones a lot i have an iphone and i listen to music a lot i find like led zeppelin for example like when the levee breaks something like that is really good for going through tube stations i uh, ask people maybe a lot more than other people would because i don't expect myself to necessarily know why somebody may or may not do something so i go and ask i also am very conscious about the fabrics that i wear that there are some fabrics and and textures that i can't cope with thank you very much robin and also 
do you think that your autism affects, I mean, it sounds like you've got lots of different ways of managing it in this preventative way, but do you think it still affects, I don't know, your relationships with friends, family, or, or maybe a, a boyfriend? Or, or Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, autism um, obviously affects social communication, social imagination, social interaction. So obviously it's going to have an impact on the relationships that you have with your friends and family. So there are some people on the autistic spectrum, for example, who only have one friend and that that's all they can cope with. There are other people who don't have any friends, um, and that's their choice. There are people on the spectrum who are asexual equally. There are people on the spectrum who have lots and lots of friends. I found that I, I was very lonely up until about the age of 21 or 22 when I moved to London. I started off going to uh, social groups for other people on the autistic spectrum. Um, I suppose that my friends predominantly, they have some sort of autism connection, whether they've had a sibling who's on the autistic spectrum or whether they work in autism. Thank you, Robin. And you mentioned that you work in the musical area, so you're a musician, I believe. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yes. I mean, people traditionally think of people with autism spectrum disorders as being scientists like myself, for example. You're obviously creatively very good. So how how does that work? I mean, do you see that there's, a, there's some stigma attached to autism now and some preconceptions with the public? Um, well, actually, I'm terrible at maths, so I'm <laughs> the complete opposite to you. I'd make a terrible scientist, I think. I think that um, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings around autism um, because uh, Simon Baron Cohen worked on the theory uh, around systemizing how people on the autistic spectrum like systems, and music is something that does involve lots of systems. If you think about how um, scales are made up, that's a system, and actually mm -hmm. that relies on a lot of maths. M what music offers some people on the autistic spectrum, like me, is like a simpler way of communicating because human beings can be very complicated and quite hard to communicate with but when you communicate with people you know through music that takes a lot of the difficulties away thank you robin stewart speaking about her experiences with autism and robin is also a national autistic society ambassador where she helps others with the condition we next make a move to speak with the scientist that came up with the autism systemizing hypothesis that Robin just mentioned. Professor Simon Baron-Cohen, who's director of the Autism Research Centre at Cambridge University. I started by asking what autism actually is. Autism is a neurodevelopmental condition. So it means that it affects the way the brain develops. And the brain isn't developing in a typical fashion. And the symptoms that you observe are that the child is not showing the normal interest in people and instead they become preoccupied by objects. So they have trouble in the peer group, in developing social relationships and in communication. But the other side of autism is that they become very obsessed with objects or the physical world. So they don't just have interests in the usual way, but they go into things much more deeply. And they also have trouble with coping with change they like things to be very predictable. Autism is a lifelong condition in that it's the way the child is born, probably caused by prenatal factors. You don't expect the person to kind of grow out of their autism, it's there for life. And how many people does autism actually affect worldwide? The estimates are that it's about 1% of the population. For example, in any primary school, usually about 200 kids, there'd be you know, one or two kids with a diagnosis of autism. So I see that as quite common, and, it's, uh, and those numbers are much higher than they used to be. If you went back 20 or 30 years ago, the textbooks told us that it was four children in every 10,000. 
has become recognised much more, and the fact that we're also recognising a much broader spectrum probably means we're picking up more cases. So it's that rather than the fact that there's an increase in number of people that are actually getting the disorder, maybe because of an environmental factor, for example. So there has been some hypothesis that increased environmental toxins might lead to an increase in the risk of autism. Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of safer to assume that the increase, which is definitely there, reflects more about that we're better at picking it up and also that we've broadened the criteria for what counts as autism. You know, that maybe a generation ago, a child who was just a bit different and maybe obsessed with maths or chess might not have got a diagnosis. We might have just thought that that was an eccentric child, a child who's a bit different or maybe even a bit delicate. Those are kind of the words that people used to use. And now we might give it a, a, a psychiatric label. But the idea that there's something in the environment, a toxin, I don't think there's any, any good evidence for that. And the danger, of course, is that if you start trying to link the increase with some environmental toxin, you can raise a lot of public anxiety. And that's exactly what happened with the MMR debate, the idea that the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps and rubella, that's given to children at about 18 months old might cause autism. Once that idea was floated, it caused a lot of public anxiety about the vaccine programme, public health programme, but it turned out that there was no good evidence for it. It was simply more the case that the age at which symptoms might emerge in children was shortly after uh, the vaccine had been administered. And so that's why that link was made in the first place, but it turned out to be nothing more than a coincidence in timing. Around 18 months is the age when you'd start to notice, that's probably the earliest age, you'd start to notice that a child wasn't interacting with their peer group or maybe was delayed in language. So it could be a coincidence in timing, but the original research linking them was actually because they found the measles virus more commonly in the gut of children with autism. But later research didn't support it. So there are some of the symptoms that you've mentioned, like for example, being fixated on a particular task, getting concerned about change yeah. um, and the structure of your day-to-day -day life, for example. Sometimes people with autism may have difficulty reading people's expressions and feeling empathy for other people. Well, these are in some way things that I relate to, so I don't like change that much, and um, and I can get fixated on certain tasks, mm. and also some of the tasks that scientists used to help investigate autism, where you try and read a facial expression of an actor, I find it incredibly difficult to tell whether someone is frightened or amazed, for example. So does that mean that I have a small amount of autism? And is it a disorder? Right, well on the question of uh, the word disorder, uh, I don't tend to use that term in relation to autism. So I prefer the terminology autism spectrum conditions uh, because I think condition reflects that it is a biomedical event um, and that this person might need a diagnosis to get support. So it's kind of not trivialising the fact that the symptoms might be interfering with the person's life such that they need to go to a clinic and get help. But calling it a disorder, I think is a bit harsh, you know, to tell somebody you're brain is disordered. And I don't think there's any clear evidence for disorder. It's just that these are children who are developing differently. And there's a kind of recent concept that's come in called neurodiversity, the idea that in any community, in any population, the brain is going to be developing in different ways in different people, that there isn't a single route for normal development. And of course, we've always known that, because if you think about left-handedness and right-handedness, that gives you one example of diversity in how the brain gets wired up. But of course, the brain is much more complex than just about whether the right or the left is dominant. 
And you can imagine some children who are more verbal or less verbal, some who are more obsessive or less obsessive. So these, so that in that sense, there are many different cognitive or neural profiles in the population, and autism may just be one of those profiles. But, uh, but if it's interfering with the way that the person can function, they might need a diagnosis. But it is kind of opening up this whole new way of thinking about autism, which is that it's a spectrum of traits that runs right through the population. And we all have some autistic traits. And I suppose that maybe at one end of the spectrum it offers um, a, an evolutionary advantage to have some of these traits, these personality traits. Yeah, I mean, the idea of linking autism with evolution is interesting because autism is partly genetic. So although we don't yet know which are the genes that are necessary and sufficient to cause autism, we know that it runs in families uh, and potentially a large number of genes are involved. So if you find a trait or a condition that's partly genetic, then you immediately start thinking, why is it still in the gene pool? Has it been adaptive or positively selected in evolution. And as you say, some of the aspects of autism, they're not necessarily disabilities, they, they can even be talents. So children with autism are very good at spotting details and they love patterns. So they'd be incredibly good at um, where's Wally, for example, spotting where Wally is within this myriad picture, this very busy picture yeah. of um, lots of different people. Yeah, so the, the task of where's Wally is really about attention to detail. In the modern environment, you know, that particular children's game may not be adaptive, it may just be fun. But you could imagine millions of years ago, individuals who were good at spotting details might have had some advantage, including reproductive advantage, in terms of spotting predators or finding resources and food and kind of learning what's safe and what's harmful in the environment. And going back to the genetics of autism, it seems as though males are more likely to have autism than females. Um, is that something to do with the Y chromosome, so the chromosome that only men express? I've got two X chromosomes and you've got an X and a Y. Is, is that something to do with that incidence difference between genders? The genes for autism, I mentioned, it's not a single gene condition, so there are many genes involved. Some of them may be on the X chromosome, and the fact that females have two X chromosomes and males only have one may mean that the genes for autism vary according to the number of X chromosomes you have. The other thing is that autism can, can occur in females. We've been looking at the role of this so-called male hormone, testosterone, but actually both sexes produce the hormone, it's just that males produce more of it. But we've been looking at the role of that hormone in shaping brain development in typical children and whether higher levels of prenatal testosterone are linked to more autistic traits. We've been finding mothers who had amniocentesis during pregnancy where you can take some of the fluid that surrounds the baby and analyse it, in this case for testosterone, and then wait for the baby to be born We've been finding that the children who had higher levels of prenatal testosterone show more autistic traits during postnatal development. And how does this fit in with the view that autism is kind of an extreme male condition? So, for example, I've been listening to the radio recently. I've heard some women getting in touch saying, my husband has definitely got autism. I mean, he's just so unempathetic. He is behaving in a particular way, um, spending all of his time in the tool shed, organising his tools and being very fastidious about the work that he does on the house. He must be autistic. So, 
you know, the idea that um, autism might just be an extreme of the typical male brain, that comes from the notion that there are sex differences in the general population in cognition. Quite a lot of research shows that there are average differences between males and females. It's not that all males show one pattern and all females show another, but males, even from childhood, are more likely to be interested in objects, in machines, uh, constructional toys like Lego, and females are more interested, as a group, on average, show more interest in people. And so the idea that autism may just be an extreme of the typical male profile, well, it sort of fits that, you know, that people with autism show even less interest in people. But the idea that if you show that profile, you need a diagnosis, that doesn't necessarily follow. You know, there are a lot of people who enjoy quite solitary activities down in the garden shed, but that's all part of the normal variation in the population. It doesn't mean they need a diagnosis unless it's causing difficulties at work, leading to perhaps losing their job because they're not managing to work with colleagues, causing depression because of social isolation. So we have to kind of distinguish between normal variation, which may be linked to sex differences, and the point at which it starts to interfere with your ability to cope. Which then moves on to the diagnosis of autism for this big spectrum where lots of characteristics occur on this continuum of, of how people behave and what their personalities are, are made up of. So how do you diagnose autism and are there any biological markers that you can use in order to help with that? So the diagnosis of autism at the moment rests on behaviour. I think a lot of clinicians would like it if there was a biological marker to improve diagnosis because otherwise diagnosis can be a bit subjective. And, you know, that's a kind of hope but we're not there yet. We're quite a few years away. And I sort of suspect that even if we knew all the genes involved or all the hormones involved or any other biological marker, we might still need the clinical interview. So you'd sort of need to show not only that they've got, as it were, the blueprint for autism, but it's having an impact in their everyday life. And finally, there's been decades of research trying to understand autism and and yet we seem so far away from having a full grasp on it. Why do you think that is? So autism was first described in 1943. So we've had 70 years of research, but actually quite a few decades actually, up until about the year 2000, there was very little science going on. If you look at the rate of publishing of journal articles in science on the topic of autism, the line is pretty much flat from 1943 up to 2000, and then it takes off. And that reflects that, that a lot more funding is going into autism research, probably also the result of effective lobbying by parent groups and charities saying, well, we're spending all this funding on other conditions like cancer. Why aren't we spending the proportionate amount of money on understanding autism? So in some ways, it's kind of early days. Also, the early research was often focused on the psychology of autism, but not so much on the neuroscience or the biology. So that's really just opened up since the technology has been available. Brain scanning, the new genetics, and also old theories about the causes of autism 
the idea that it was caused by bad parenting kind of got in the way of making scientific progress. Thanks to Simon Baron-Cohen from Cambridge University. So given that we know so little about the biological basis of autism and seem so far away from any biological treatment, how best to help those children currently affected? I met with Tom Hughes, doctoral trainee educational psychologist at Birmingham University. He's also working with the Educational Psychology Service to help children with autism both in the home and school setting. Sometimes we'll find in class, for example, that a member of staff makes a throwaway comment, sets off a child with autism because the comment can be interpreted in a number of ways. Sometimes by raising awareness of how a child with autism may have interpreted a statement like it's raining cats and dogs, provides additional insight. So often we will work with children with autism to develop skills that come quite naturally to lots of other children, so turn-taking or sharing or looking at, at another person on entry into room, for example, are skills that typically developing children will generally pick up with little instruction. So an example of where a peer may support that is by creating sharing or turn-taking games where a number of typically developing peers are working alongside children with autism. Various studies indicate that peer-based learning is as effective, if not more effective, than adult-led learning when it comes to those social skills that are being developed. And are there any issues for the peers in the class? Um, maybe their time is being taken up then by helping. Is there any danger that you're actually holding back the peers in the group in the mainstream education system? That's certainly a consideration for any of these interventions. Um, parents are often worried about time taken out of learning, for example, to support special educational needs or inclusion more generally. My experience is that children that are providing the support also benefit from these interventions and, and what they gain from developing or promoting pro-social behaviours and learning to be more empathetic about the needs of others generally, as long as the time is within reason, outweighs the challenge of taking them away from whatever they would be doing in class. And then as the child develops um, and they go through primary school into secondary school, for example, and then out past the educational system, what do you typically see with these students? There's no doubt that children with autism struggle at the points of transition in their educational career. So the transition from primary to secondary school is often a source of real concern. Clearly the secondary settings are bigger and there are more peers, which is often an area that the autistic child might struggle with. And there are more teachers, they will move between class. The regular transitions are all areas that typically children with autism will struggle with. Our advice in terms of structuring a learning environment to support children with autism focuses often in four areas. The first one is around supporting the receptive language needs, so supporting their understanding in class and making sure that they've got appropriate ways of communicating their needs. The second one is to use visual cues. So we would often talk about visual timetables or symbols or objects or pictures as being a, an appropriate way to develop understanding of a topic. Thirdly, we often do work to ensure that unstructured times of the day are more tightly managed for children with autism. So transitions between lessons or breaks or lunchtime or assembly, for example, are often difficult times of the day. And children with autism may need more support in those periods. Um, and then finally, we often work with teachers and parents to help children predict what's about to happen. So children with autism typically may struggle with unknown elements of the day or unpredictable parts of their life. And predicting and then helping communicate what's to be expected ahead is, is an area that, uh, that really makes a difference for children with autism. 
And then past school, past secondary education, what kind of support can you give people with autism spectrum conditions then? Autism is, um, of course, a, a lifelong disability that will continue to manifest into adulthood. Um, many of the children and young people that we work with will progress through education and lead successful and independent adult lives. Of course, those children and young people that we work with that have a greater level of need may continue to need some assisted living arrangements as they move on from education. And the difficulty, of course, is generalising any of our expectations because children and young people with autism present differently and making generic statements about what we can expect post-education is impossible. Certainly I work hard with schools and parents and families to identify the individual differences within the manifestation of autism and to consider the autism as an extension of the individual rather than as a definition of the individual. Thank you, Tom. Well, that's all we have time for this month, I'm afraid. If you have any questions about autism, then you can find information and support with the National Autistic Society at worldwideweb.autism.org.uk. Thanks to all those who took part in the programme, Kate Lamble, Robin Stewart, Simon Baron-Cohen and Tom Hughes, and thanks to the support from Cambridge Neuroscience. We'll be back again next month to open our minds with a Q&A special show, tackling your burning brain questions. So if you have any comments or questions, then contact Hannah at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Neuroscience, or you can post on the Naked Scientist Facebook page, and you'll find the full transcript for this episode and other Naked Neuroscience episodes on our website. That's thenakedscientists.com forward slash neuroscience. See you next month to open our minds.